Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Shake. One episode for you guys today is part three. How do you know? You don't even know, it's Chris. It's always fun. It's always fun to hang out with Jake. <laughs> we got part three of our greatest scandals of automotive scandals of all time. Right. This is our last part of part three. And I'm hoping it's less macabre than last week. It is. Last week. And... You'll have to bear with me because it it did start out and the intent is to be kind of the final installment of our Greatest Scandals series. However, as I looked into this last story, I was really fascinated by the car itself. Your hair is really nice. Thank you. I wish I still had hair. I'm growing it out and just going straight up with it because I can. Yeah, you might as well. Do that, it while you can. Do it while you can appreciate it. Yeah. Anyway, continue. You're going to interrupt our yeah. podcast and tell me okay. how nice my hair is. It probably smells nice, too. You always smell nice. This is getting <laughs> weird now. <laughs> Keep going. It's all good. Anyways, I was so fascinated by the car itself that's going to be the topic of the story that I kind of worked less scandal into it and more of just a fascinating dive into one of the most advanced cars you've probably never heard of. The Tesla Roadster. <laughs> No. (laughs) We've heard of that one and never seen it. No. Before we get ahead of myself here, though, let's take a moment to talk about PetrolBox. PetrolBox is a monthly service made specifically for the automotive enthusiast. Each month, they carefully select items, including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, and publications to be sent right to your doorstep. It's a curated selection of the latest and greatest gear in the industry. There's actually two different levels of subscription to choose from. The Petrobox Basic costs less than 20 bucks a month, while the Petrobox Premium gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Check them out at mypetrolbox.com and be sure to use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month. You know what's really disappointing? What's that? Is when you see a box and you open it and it's and something it's you're not Petrobox. No, it's, <laughs> it's something that your wife ordered off Amazon and it's dumb. Yeah. But whenever you see the Petrobox, you know. You know it's going to be fun. You're always excited That's to true. open it. It's a great gift too. It is for sure. Okay. As with all of these great stories, Chris, it starts with a kid. What's his name? Let me tell you about like wacky this name. kid. Is he this, a wacky is, name? this is Carl Breer. Oh, that's okay. It's Carl, fairly that's normal. That's Carl. Normal. So Carl, is it Carl with a K or a C? With a C. Okay, so totally normal. Exactly. Not right. German at all. Okay. <laughs> Just checking. Carl Breer was born on the 8th of November, 1883, in what was the very brick house built in Los Angeles. The very brick house? I said, did I say the very brick or the very first? The very brick house. It was the very first. Okay, well, but it's also very brick. <laughs> I bet it was. It was a very brick house. Yeah. No, uh, Breer's family was fairly. I well thought off. that it was like that was its name. It was so brick. It was there's it was so <laughs> much brick. It was the very brick. Damn it! No, it was the very first, and that's supposed to be interesting. That is interesting, yes. Chris. Yeah, absolutely. It was the, the very, very first, first one brick house in L.A. Uh, Breer's family was fairly well off, as his father owned his own successful blacksmithing shop. Young Carl learned the trade early on and began constructing horse-drawn carriages of his own design when he was a teenager. Mm. When Carl was 14... I mean, how hard can it be to design a horse-drawn carriage? Right? I mean, come on. I mean, I don't know if you could do it right now if I give you the tools. I bet I could. Is this a challenge? Do Are I we have to have build- a carriage build off? 
The, 20, <laughs> the 2021 overcrest carriage build off. Oh, I hope not. It was so lame. Uh, <laughs> when Carl was 14, he was given a personalized tour of the Los Angeles Waterworks pumping plant by the engineer in charge, Fred J. Fisher. During the tour, he noticed an innovation that Fisher made a homemade electric generator to generate electricity for light bulbs in the dark corners of the plant. Carl so in this water was treatment plant, instantly fascinated. So this, he's in this water treatment plant. There's like, he just has like a little hydro hydro yes. generator just to run like the yeah, 12 Yeah, he's got watt like light weird light bulbs over in dark, dingy corners. Like and it. Carl's like, what's this? And he's like, like oh, that's my generator that I made. Yeah. Did Batman live down there too? <laughs> <laughs> Probably just bats. No Batman. From that time on, Carl would frequently return to the plant and learn from the engineer. He actually built his own version of the homemade generator and used it to light his family's home. You imagine this young, your young son coming along. You're spending a lot of time down at the waterworks plant with that yeah. engineer guy. Yep. Well, look, Dad, I brought us home. Free a, electricity. A, yeah, a generator. It's great. And then they figured out how to tax him immediately. <laughs> <laughs> uh, three years later, at the age of 17, Carl saw a Duria motorized horseless carriage puttering through the neighborhood. The Duria, because I know you're curious yeah, here, I was, Chris. I, I was just thinking it sounds a little bit too much like diarrhea to me. Duria? Yeah. yeah D- not a great name. D-U-R-E-A. It was a three-wheel, three-cylinder gasoline-powered car. And I use the term car loosely because this thing was more of a fancy cart, which, fun fact, were mostly sold to doctors who, quote, enjoyed the power, reliability, and heady 20 mile an hour top speed heady yeah, yeah. is that from an ad or like yeah. a heady 20 heady. miles per hour yes. yeah very good uh upon seeing this car carl was instantly determined to dedicate his life to building cars i love that when you just have that in, in a seminal He's moment like, and you're like Aha! yeah that's it that's what i'm gonna do so together with mr fisher the I water wonder if back then it was easier to do that because you didn't have so many things flying in your face it wasn't you need to go to college you need to do this it was more well you're gonna learn a trade or you're gonna come up with it some invention probably was and it was well for a lot of people i don't think they had a choice you usually just brought up in the trade that your parents and right. grandfathers and everyone else had done so unless you're gonna invent something you basically, you basically you're a blacksmith just that. like your dad. Yeah, yeah. Or you're the farmer yeah. working on the family farm. So together with Mr. Fisher, the waterworks engineer, whom became his mentor of sorts, he designed a steam engine to power a vehicle. The basic architecture was based off a... This is when? When is this? Sorry. This is 18... Like late 1800s. Yep. Okay. Right before Right 1900s. before the turn of the century. Exactly. So steam stuff is not new technology. No, it's not. And so much so that the basic architecture of this steam engine was based off a Stanley steamer design, which he found in a magazine. <laughs> I love that this was the age where Mail magazines would show you how to build a steam engine. That's great. Well, now the internet just shows you how to build a steam engine. If you want to, you can go on YouTube and probably figure out how to build a steam probably engine. Probably could. It's like this. I'm trying to think of any, like, any analog to today. Like, there's woodworking magazines or like home improvement magazines that yeah. show you how to build a deck or something. Popular mechanics used to have some cool stuff in it. That's back true. In the day. It probably was think... something close to popular mechanics yeah. then. Uh, combined with his knowledge gained from blacksmithing, he engineered a two cylinder steam engine. He took detailed blueprint, blueprint sketches along with a wood carved model of the cylinder block to a foundry to be cast. 
when the foundry failed on several attempts to make the casting, Brewer asked if he could try using the facility himself. <laughs> so imagine, <Come> on. <laughs> imagine you're the manager of a big industrial foundry around the turn of the century and some 17-year-old punk kid shows up with sketches and this wood model asking you to cast an engine. And I, you can't do it. I assume, first of all, I assume he had money to pay for this. So right. you agree begrudgingly. But after several different attempts, the pesky kid still isn't happy and has the nerve to imply that he could do it better himself. I'm surprised they let him, honestly. Well, they did, they? did <laughs> let him do it. And I'm wondering... There had to have been some oversight there. Well, I'm also wondering if at this point they just wanted him to fail or realize how hard it was. Kind of like, see, okay, kid. kid. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But that's not what happened. Mm. On Carl's first attempt at casting the component himself, it came out perfect. But that's not even the most impressive part of his steam engine, Chris. Another component Carl needed was a Bunsen-type burner fueled by gasoline to heat the boiler for steam. The design required about 3,000 small holes to be drilled into the inner chamber of the air tubes. Where the gas is going to go. Exactly. You need, like, the mixture device. Yep. Apparently, he didn't have access to a drill press that could do this, so he improvised a high-speed drill press that operated on water pressure. What? He used water pressure... To drive the drill bit? To run a drill bit that worked really, like... Because he needed wow. the small precision and speed. That's impressive. Yes. I want to see this drill press. I'm seriously interested. They have big industrial water-powered drill presses. So they used, the, I forget the design term. I pulled it out of here because it was getting really in the weeds. But yeah, there are big mechanical like water drive drill presses. Yeah, but presses this guy has one that probably thing. fits on the kitchen table. He said it used it off of his house's water tap, basically. That's pretty cool. It was very cool. It's like a Dremel, but with water. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's what yeah. I'm picturing is a little water Dremel. Yep. It's probably very similar to like a dentist drill. Now yes. that you think about it. Yeah. With this innovation, the holes were drilled in short time. The, Carl, so this kid drilled 3,000. I know, yes. Little tiny holes. 3,000 holes with a little Dremel. <laughs> he probably didn't have any notifications popping up on his phone <laughs> to interrupt him. That's true, a little he more focused. He literally had nothing else to do. It's great. It just Well, he so probably could have been working at his dad's uh, blacksmith shop. Yeah, probably. Damn, kid. Uh, Breer assembled his vehicle and made his maiden voyage in September of 1901. Several improvements were made over the next couple of years, such as a spare gas tank for the boiler, so that he could go trout fishing with his brother Bill at a stream 35 miles away on Rough Dirt Road, a trip, mind you, not possible with horse and buggy. It's no surprise that Carl went on to get his mechanical engineering degree from Stanford in 1909. I wonder what the qualifications were to get into Stanford back then. All right, kid, have you ever built your own steam engine from yeah, scratch? Yeah, does he just show up and like, just drive the thing? Like, <laughs> I built this, and they're like, you're in. Right. What was it? It's, I don't now know. Now it's like, well, what are your SAT scores? And it's a bunch of crap. I, I don't know, but he graduated from Stanford, mechanical engineering. He went on to have a successful stint at numerous early manufacturers, uh, he started with um, Alice Chalmers, yeah, which is right the tractor out of company. Milwaukee, and yep. then he worked for some others before he met Walter P. Chrysler. And as we know, Chrysler went on to establish his own car company and made Carl Breer the executive engineer and director of research. So are they kind of the same age, or is Mr. No, Chrysler? Chrysler a little... was older. He okay. was an executive that worked at several other 
um, companies. He worked for GM. He worked for Tucker. He not okay. Tucker. Tucker was our last episode. <laughs> <laughs> but he worked for a lot of other um, obscure manufacturers okay. right around the turn of century. There was a lot of people trying to like fire up car companies back Exactly. Then. Almost like now with the amount of cars that You're are trying right. to put the electric car Interesting. Company. Yeah. Fast forward to 1927. That's when Carl, returning to Detroit one evening. I thought you were going to say returning to from World War I. Uh, that's no. About, that's about to happen. It, yeah, we skipped over that part. Did he go to World War One? No, he helped design stuff. Oh, well, that's cool, too. Yeah. Um, Sounds like this guy could be a bunch of different episodes. It sounds he, like an interesting He could. Dude. I had to dice it up a little bit. Let's get to the car. It's okay. kind of whatever I get at. All right. But anyways, in 1927, he was returning to Detroit one evening and saw in the distance what appeared to be a flock of geese. As he got closer, he discovered it was actually a formation of Army Air Force planes flying low across the highway in the distance. That's when he started to wonder if aircraft design and aerodynamics, more specifically, could be applied to car design. It seems silly today, but this was revolutionary at the time. Keep in mind that at this time, cars didn't really travel fast enough even to benefit from any yeah, thought to matter. airflow. You could just, it could be a box, and it didn't matter because it went 25 miles per hour. Yes, Who cares? and it's a little bit of a tangent here, but it's interesting to realize that from the inception of the car at the turn of the century, all the way through to the late 1930s, these Horseless carriages really were thought of in terms of what preceded them. And it's easy to understand why. Cars came to replace horses. So it's only natural for people to think of them in terms of what was familiar. What is a car, too, at a the time? A car is short for carriage. And cars of the day were still built much in the same way that you would construct a horse-drawn carriage. And the only other type of car at the time was a train car, which, which is just a giant carriage. cube. Exactly. You know, yeah, so all of these cars of the day were built with stiff framed stiff frames suspended over straight axles and wooden wheels. Do they even have leaf springs on some of this stuff? Yeah, they had leaf springs in the early cars, just but no shocks. <laughs> exactly. You know, it rides like the down. truck out front. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Think also that we measure these newfangled contraptions in horsepower. Right. So ingrained was this connection to the first cars, to horses. What is a, what is one horsepower, by the way? Real quick. What do you mean? It's a ability for a horse to do, to pull some, what is it? Well, originally it was designed or denoted by, um, they would use horses to pull up carts from mine shafts. Right. So it was the amount of work that one horse could do to pull up that much like coal or whatever they were mining. Whatever distance and what time. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, so we measured him in horsepower, and so ingrained was this thought of horses, horseless carriages being kind of the new type of car that owners were still draping blankets over the engines when their cars were garaged, just as you would when you bring a horse into the stable, you throw a blanket over it. They were the stabled steeds. Nobody's doing that with their newfangled whatchamacallits. No, they're you know, not. It's kind of a bummer. So, when our intrepid engineer, Carl, had the idea to apply aerodynamic theories to cars, he really was ahead of his time. Wind tunnels had been used for airplane design and testing, but certainly weren't common. So, Carl and his engineers consulted with none other than Orville Wright. In a well, we few months' time, yes, we do, he was at Kitty Hawk when him and his brother first took powered flight. So, they go to the source to talk aerodynamics. And in a few months' time, the engineers at Chrysler had constructed a 20-by-40-foot aerodynamic How far lab. removed are we from when Orville Wright had their first flight? 
That was 1912, I believe. Yeah, somewhere in the 1910 plus or minus area. I'm not a historian. So So we're in like the late 1920s now. Exactly. Okay. Yep. So they had constructed a 20 by 40 foot aerodynamic lab for the purpose of testing various shapes of small car models. The wind tunnel they built had a throat of just 20 inches by 30 inches in cross section. So the wind creating propellers were driven by a 35 horsepower motor that could be regulated for various speeds. So they didn't have an enormous wind tunnel. No, it's a very small wind tunnel and they made little models. So the results were shown by black smoke from an oil lamp basically dropped over it. Right. Because you can't computer simulate airflow. You're just looking at smoke going over it. The team started by testing existing vehicle design. So I'm, I'm thinking, like, we know what, like, a hatchback does. We know what a spoiler does. We know what all these things do. Yeah. These guys don't. Okay, so they're looking at this oil stuff going over this shape, maybe not even necessarily realizing what a vacuum is on the back of a car. They know do. fundamentals, but I will get into how, like, just kind of amazing it was to come to these conclusions yeah it must have been just great to see this stuff for the first time yeah how how much first time do we have outside of computer and medical world now yeah how many first do we have left well i mean people on mars will be a first that's still not many it's not some dude some (laughs) dude's not some dude's not designing carriages and then going to work for chrysler coming up with firsts yeah. You know, we're going to Mars. Nobody, no regular dudes just going to Mars. Right. Like the, the chance for regular people to have. Chris is like, what can I do that I'm the first at? Yes, I can think <laughs> of. <laughs> All right. So they started by testing existing vehicle designs. So they would whittle out blocks of wood that looks like, oh, this is like a Ford Model T and this is other vehicles. And, and they went, wow, these things are super not aerodynamic. Well, <laughs> yes. The resulting airflow over the models was so bad that Carl joked they couldn't be any worse if they drove them in reverse. <laughs> Spurred by his own quip and an unrelenting curiosity, Carl placed the models backward in the wind tunnel. However, the engineers were astonished to find that the air resistance was actually reduced by 30% driving the vehicles backwards. Well, if you look at the shape of these things, you flip them around, it's more of a teardrop shape exactly. than it is uh, anything else. Carl was quoted as saying, Think how dumb we've been. All these cars have been running around in the wrong direction. <laughs> There was even later a uh, publicity little video where they would like film a city of cars flying by and they just reversed it. So all the cars are going backwards and it was some voiceover like, your eyes are not deceiving you. This is the way cars should be designed. And everybody's like, what? Yes, exactly. What the Chrysler engineers discovered was that cars whose design was up until this point, simply an arrangement of box shapes should be constructed more like a blimp or teardrop round in the front, and tapered off to a smaller section in the rear. This design made airflow much more efficient since it would then be close to the body as it flowed forward towards the rear. So we're talking early 30s, you know, late 20s when they're developing this stuff. This is a complete shock to people that understand in their mind what a car should be and what a car should look like. Exactly. This is wildly unconventional. Yes, it is. I'm glad you're bringing that up. So the boys at Chrysler got to work. Current automotive design called for a relatively narrow, flat radiator at the front of a vehicle, a body wide enough for two passengers in the front seat, three in the rear, and a high square back. This was basically just for efficiency. Yeah, you have your space, let's make it a box, and you want your radiator flat on the front so it pulls in the most air. Yep. 
Well, to achieve a sloping rear, the passenger compartment would have to be moved forward. This would then require that the engine would also be moved forward. The engineers came up with a design cradling the engine over the front axle that allowed the passenger compartment to be moved forward a full 20 inches on the chassis. There you go. So up in this, up until this point, the front axle was always way ahead right. of the engine. Right. In addition to the sloping rear deck, this resulted in several other benefits to the design. The rear seat passengers were now moved forward of the rear axle and closer to the center of gravity of the vehicle, resulting in a much more body control over bumps. In fact, the vehicle had a near perfect 50-50 weight distribution, the benefits of which weren't even fully realized at the time. Right, right now we enough. go, eh, hey, it's got that 50-50 weight distribution for handling. Yeah, that's what all the 944 guys tell me. At the <laughs> <laughs> In keeping with the ideal teardrop shape, the front seat was widened by 10 inches, giving room for up to three passengers across the front, making the first six-passenger car. Breer and his team produced a fully built prototype in 1932. It was comprised of a short, wide, rounded hood. Gone were the traditional valleys between the front fenders and the hood. Do I know this car? Not really. I don't think you do. All right. I'm going to look it up real quick. What's the? Are you going to tell me the name yet? I Not yet. Okay. Just give me a minute. Okay. But just picture this as I'm explaining it. So gone were traditional valleys between the big fenders and the hood. And the headlights were integrated into the body rather than being housed in separate pods. The vehicle had a steeply sloping curved glass windshield and a gently sloping roof that continued all the way down to the rear bumper. In addition to the revolutionary design, the car also featured many engineering innovations. It incorporated all steel bodies at a time when most bodies were framed in wood with sheet metal attached to it. Did it have pneumatic rockets that came out of the license plate? Did not have pneumatic rockets. Okay. This is not the Roadster, Chris. We already, it, we already been it, over this. Was it bulletproof? Could you, it was, could you say it's bulletproof and then throw freaking bowling balls at the window and then break the glass and then it's not? It's not a Tesla. It's, okay, it continues. Sorry, sorry. I didn't mean to. Didn't mean to mess just, you up. Just no idea. Just, <laughs> just right. Uh, this allowed most of the strength of the unit to be built into the body itself, as opposed to a massive iron ladder frame underneath. Right. The chassis was actually a lattice work of tubing, similar to a full roll cage. Similar and, to a blimp. And a blimp. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, it incorporated an automatic overdrive transmission, which was a first in the automotive world. And what is an overdrive transmission? That, that simply mean means because it's there, one, two, three, and you'll see like O or OD or D right. or whatever. Yeah. So traditionally, a engine is always spinning at a higher RPM than the output or the wheels. An overdrive transmission simply means that now they're reducing the speed of the output of the transmission to lower than that of the, or to actually faster than that of the engine. So they're overdriving the engine speed. So how? Why are your RPM so low then in overdrive? Because your output is now faster than your engine input. Right. So now we're able to bring those RPMs way down. Right. More so efficiency. Yes. Exactly. And you know what else is a first in the automotive world, Chris? Ober Car Care. Oh! Ober Car Care is your source for professional detailing compounds and supplies that is research tested and developed by professional detailers themselves. These are the guys that are passionate about detailing and know firsthand what makes a good product. And they truly are great products. I love that it's a simple, foolproof, two-step process. It's easy and gives an amazing finish. So if you look at my scooter right now, it's kind of like, it's it's kind of shiny. Kay. But if you look at the fender that I stripped down yeah. and use like a, 
over a compound to, to oh did you you started polishing I, it well it had a little bit of a tinge of red to it from the red spray paint that's right so then i went after it with a, now the fender is like wow <laughs> it looks really really nice it's paint missing and stuff like that but, yeah, it's, but like it's super shiny. super shiny that's awesome i have to do the rest of the scooter now <laughs> yeah you do uh right now Oberk is offering a whopping 20 percent off your next order when you use the code overcrest the discount code is good not only at oberkcarcare.com but also on detailedimage.com and carsupplieswarehouse.com go check them out today so chris when you look at this car today, it just looks like any other car with swoopy styling from the 1940s. When Mr. Chrysler himself saw the car, he immediately gave the green light to put it into production. The only question was what to call it. Well, that part was actually quite fitting. The Airflow Chrysler with a floating ride and genuine streamlined design. The more you see of it, the better you would like it, which is always true of any article based on sound, functional design. But you have only seen and heard the story of this newest creation of nature and man working hand in hand and side by side. You must also feel its difference from conventional cars to appreciate the real significance of the expression fashioned by function. Ride in it, drive it, own it, and enjoy the sensation of going forward with Chrysler. Hey. <laughs> I had to keep that in there. No, that's fine. So I looked up what streamlined means. Okay. Do you know what streamlined means? It's, it's like the etymology of, of all right, horn guy. <laughs> um, so it is the line drawn from point to point so that its direction is everywhere that of the motion of the fluid. Or uh, the definition is a teardrop line of contour offering the least possible resistance to a current of air, water, et cetera. Right. So it is aerodynamics. Yes. It, it is, is streamlined. streamlined. I, just think it's, I think it's a cool word. It really is. So introduced in 1934 at the New York Auto Show, the Chrysler Airflow was the most aerodynamic and advanced car in the world, far ahead of its time. So much so that General Motors was furious that this new smaller company, Chrysler, had built a more advanced car than it could. So you got it all figured out, do ya? You couldn't <laughs> leave well enough alone. <laughs> By the way, I apologize if you're not a Family Guy fan. Putting these stories together, I just realized there's so many good one-liners that work without any context it's at all. all. Good. It's all good. Anyways, the mudslinging from General Motors began. And here's where the scandal part comes in. GM bought advertisements in the Saturday Evening Post claiming that the radical Chrysler was actually plagiarized from a top-secret GM design. Not only that, but because the car was simply a copy and didn't have all the engineering that the larger GM would have possessed, or so the story went, the car was actually unsafe and presented a danger on the roads. What was the GM thing called? It's like some top-secret thing. What is well, it? As you may have guessed, when later pushed what this top-secret future design was, GM was actually unable to produce any documentation or proof that they had developed anything at all like the airflow. Stuff back then was absolutely cutthroat, wasn't it? Yes, it They just was. lied and threw mud and absolutely brutal. Chrysler responded by hosting a whole series of demonstrations at the Chicago Century of Progress exhibition. 
The focus was on the car's inherent safety, which was due to its advanced design. Lucky for us, they also filmed all of it and released the following newsreel. Today is a big day at the Chicago Century of Progress Exposition. For today, amid these wonders of the world, a motor car is going to make its heroic bid for the championship of motoring safety. Ooh. Down in this testing track, reminiscent of the arena of ancient Rome, <laughs> this modern gladiator will be put through a series of the most dangerous and thrilling exploits ever attempted. The judges they were very dramatic I'm thinking of hoops of fire and stuff. And they're really going to find out whether this car can take it. The first test is braking efficiency. Probably the most important of all from the standpoint of accident prevention. Is Evil Knievel involved? And they're going it to sounds do it like a hard be. way. These boys don't fool. The brakes are supposed to be waterproof. And they're going to find out. He soaks the road, too. And here we have, in effect, our own private cloudburst. What a swell spot for a skid when he slaps on those brakes at high speed. Here he comes. And here I go behind a nice big tree. I'll be seeing you. Say, Sarge, you must have a lot of confidence in those brakes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Chrysler hydraulic brakes. Right. And the grip of those Goodyear tires certainly adds a margin of safety. So what you didn't see there is the cars speeding around a test track yeah. in front of an audience, and they had washed down the whole thing with water, yep. so it's kind of like very low friction. And right in the braking zone is a camera crew and other officials standing right in front of it, and it comes screeching to a halt right right, right in front before of them. Right in front of them. Right in front so of them. So are, at this point, are hydraulic brakes new? Is that a new thing? No, that is all Chrysler's had hydraulic brakes. Okay, so what is revolutionary about these brakes? There were still, like, lever-actuated brakes on some cars. Good grief. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now they're setting the stage for that dreaded motoring catastrophe, a tire blowout. And just to make sure of a thorough job, old dead-eyed Don is going to use a shotgun. As the car speeds down the track, our sharpshooter draws bead, and you naturally expect oh, no. to dive for the ditch. But the car continues without a waiver. What balance and steering control? Ooh, Look yes. at that hole. Wow. Enough to sink a battleship. Time oh, when such big a catastrophe hole. would have thrown a car out of control. But not this, baby. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris. So did you drive your M5 today? I did. All right, here's what I, we're going to go do. We're going to pause the podcast. And just drive through gonna, our parking lot, which you're is gonna like drive World War III anyway. At 50 miles an hour, I'm going to grab my shotgun and shoot out your tire. Is that what he does? He shoots it? Yes! <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> he drives by thought, and he shoots the tire with a shotgun. <laughs> so you game? Are we doing this? Let's go. Uh, all right. Now this next stunt is hilarious for a very specific reason. See if you get what I'm referencing. If your face is your fortune, you can protect that schoolgirl complexion with duplex safety glass. And this speedball artist is going to demonstrate just speedball. what I mean. Hey, wait a minute. Are you sure that's the right car? Let's rehearse this act once, just to be safe. After all, that's the only face you'll ever have, and we don't want to take any chances. Where they throw some okay. cute chick through the window? They put a model in the car and then had a picture. Oh, oh a slight mistake. <laughs> throw a fastball at it. And oh. consider yourself mighty lucky you weren't behind that glass when it shattered. And then the girl's going, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's laminated it glass, again. basically, no safety glass. Was this the ah, first car with safety glass? Yes. All right, siege gun, burn in your fast one. 
Oh. Aha! The Duplex safety glass. Very reminiscent of something else we saw. It is indeed. It is. But it did not shatter and fly like ordinary glass. Make a note of that, too, in choosing your next car. See that it has Duplex safety glass. Not only in the windshield, but in all windows as well. <laughs> so I'm imagining guys going with baseballs out to go buy cars at other dealerships and being like, yeah, I'm going to have to throw this. Throw <laughs> I need this to make baseball. sure it has safety glass in it. Oh, it seems history does, in fact, repeat itself. Uh, Franz, could you try to break this glass, please? <laughs> oh, my fucking God. Well, maybe that was a little too hard. <laughs> I'll never, for, I'll never forget that. I watched that live when that happened. I did too. I'll never forget <laughs> Elon Musk throwing that ball at that glass and having it break. Yes, it Incredible. was amazing. Uh, Chrysler actually went much further than even Tesla was willing to in order to squash the negative press from GM. Why this car would stand up even if you pushed it off a cliff. Oh, you don't believe it, eh? Well, just follow me. Now, if there are any skeptics among you, prepare to be convinced. Here we are at the old rock quarry to give this heroic car its supreme test. Cast your eyes up the face of that cliff. What a drop, 110 feet, and that's as high as an eight-story building. You wouldn't think that even a steel safe could survive that tumble, much less a motor car, but let's find out. Are you ready? Yeah. Here it comes yes. on its death drop, leaping clear of the ledge and landing with crushing impact in the rocky shale beneath. Let's go survey the damage. You naturally expect to find only a heap of wreckage, but, well, judge for yourself. Despite the terrific shock to the body and chassis, the doors open and close easily. There is no structural damage. Indeed, the entire car has survived the... The entire car has transformed into a Toyota Hilux. <laughs> yes. So, even after Chrysler's best publicity efforts, the car was a total flop. Because it was, I bet it's because it was so weird. Exactly. People didn't want, they didn't have enough government subsidies to encourage them <laughs> to buy the car. That's what was missing. They didn't want the car. Nobody wanted the car. It was too much of the future. They weren't, if they just would have had $8,000 subsidies on the car, people uh -huh. would have bought the car. So that's what they needed to do. That's well, astonishingly, GM's smear campaign was also successful. Not only did the public mostly stay away from the revolutionary car, but GM itself faced no repercussions for its actions. Is there no, like, libel, slander? You would think so. Or they just I don't know. Maybe they just didn't pursue it. I don't know. The groundbreaking Chrysler Airflow was discontinued after only three years in 1937. In all, less than 30,000 cars were sold. Part of the problem, admittedly, was, as you said, the car simply looked too different. This was during the height of the Great Depression, keep in mind. It looked so different, but then everything else that came after it looked exactly, exactly. like that. So even the wealthiest during the Great Depression were kind of forced into a more conservative mindset. To counter this, Chrysler dialed back many of the design attributes that made the car so great in the first place. It toned back the aerodynamic shape of the front end in lieu of a more traditional grille in 1935. In 1936, the Airflow abandoned its smooth fastback roofline when a trunk was basically just tacked onto the rear of the car. The grille also became more pronounced in 36. By the end of 1937, Chrysler had abandoned the model altogether, and with it, one of the most forward-thinking designs of its time. I found a picture of it lowered and slammed. Did you really? It's great. <laughs> of course you did. It looks better. It looks better. Today, the Airflow has a cult following, with the Airflow Club of America driving the cars all over the country. 
We called up David Felderstein, the president of the club, to see what it's like driving these cars today. Hello. Hi, David. Now, I, I, this is Chris. Jake did the history side of this thing. I hadn't really known that much about this car. Okay. And after spending the last hour listening to its history and everything, it sounds, it sounds incredible, especially for the time. <laughs> well, you know, it was. And uh, the thing about it was it was expensive and it was the construction, the, the, the making of it was different and new. So there were birthing problems for it and it cost a lot. And the other companies were busy stabbing it, and uh, <laughs> it didn't uh, didn't succeed financially. How much really more expensive changed. was it than other cars of the of the time? Well, you know, they were about thirteen or fourteen hundred dollars uh, for an Imperial, uh, a little bit more maybe, and you know, you could get a regular car for about half that, or oh, wow. you know, two two thirds of it, and. Uh, the first year, uh, okay. Let let me let me just kind of lay this out. Have Have you seen? You, you don't know. Uh, do you know what a, a Volkswagen looks like stripped down? <laughs> yes, I do. And I'm looking okay. at the picture of this thing right now. Like, hmm, that kind of looks like a beetle on the top. Well, what it is is, um, you know, up to this point, uh, cars were made in pieces, uh, and this car is a is a monocoque. You know, so that the body, it does sit on a chassis, but a very lightweight chassis. The body is one piece, you know, many different pieces welded together and leaded right. over. But but it's it's one piece from the front to the back with a spine that goes, uh, you know, past the transmission. Um, that So when you restore these cars, you can take them. Uh, take the body off the chassis without any uh, bracing or or any any support. Sure. You know the the body is int integral to itself, and then it bolts directly down to a very light gauge chassis to make a unibody kind of. Uh, you know the earliest kind of uh, iteration of a unibody where you've seen the pictures of them pushing one over a cliff and, and so forth. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just played the uh, the newsreel of that for right. him here. Where, so. where it lands, you know, it lands on its wheels and the doors open and the roof's intact and they drive it away. Exactly. So what I'm really interested from you, David, is you have experienced driving these cars all over the country with the club. And what is it like driving these cars today? Um, well, uh, of course... It's not like a modern car in its acceleration, braking, or um, uh, maneuverability, but it is not anything like uh, its contemporaries. Uh, once you adjust yourself to the slower nature of, of doing things, like steering and accelerating and braking, you build in, uh, you build in buffers and uh, it's very straightforward, uh, unidiosyncratic, completely, you know, you just drive it, you get used to it, and it, it's very easy to drive, very easy to shift, and uh, very easy to uh, maneuver. What would have been its, would there, was there a main competition for this car back in the day? Um, or, was, or was it just one of a kind? Was it just that far removed from everything else? 
Yes, it really was. The The major innovation of this car, well, there are so many, but the major innovation is putting the engine over the front axle uh, and, and cab forward design where the people were moved into the center and not the, having the rear seat over the rear axle. They were like boxes. The old, the old design was like boxes with the wheels, uh, with the front wheels at the very front. This car has the engine uh, amidship over the uh, front axle. Right. And, and then a, 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 a slanted back driveline, I think it's seven degrees, where the driveline slants backwards towards the towards the uh the differential i think bmw does that too i think their motors sit a little their inline sixes sit a little sit a little funny yeah yeah uh and then and then uh they're very wide um three people across the front the coke bottle is different um then the older cars had very narrow hoods and the front seat was really only available for two comfortably and the back seat maybe three in this car in this sedan you can put four in the back seat and three in the front. I'm sure every girl's dad was really happy about that when they saw one of these pull up. <laughs> the back the back seat's very large. <laughs> so David, you had uh, you had led to me to to understand you have some stories about driving these across the country. Well, um, wherever our national meet is moves from the east region to the central region to the west. East, Central, West uh, every year. So there's a group of us uh, that drive together uh, to wherever it is. Most recent was in Charlottesville, Virginia. And uh, I drove from Sacramento to Charlottesville, Virginia and back. And um, friends from different parts of the West Coast, we met up in Salt Lake City or in Reno or along the way. And then we traveled together. they 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 drive uh we cruise at about 70 miles an hour because of the overdrive and uh yes we're using up a lot of gas that's true (laughs) because it's uh the big cars are two barrel uh 323 cubic inch eight uh, cylinders so you know 12 to 12 to 13 miles a gallon is a good day um they climb uh somewhat slowly, you know, up mountains, uh, but they do, and uh, uh, they're fun. So we pull into a gas station, you know, three airflows, and uh, people just, uh, the, the people just stop what they're doing and start walking towards us, you know, and uh, the typical conversation is, is this a Chrysler airflow? Uh, yes, wow, I've never seen one in person, I've only seen pictures. And uh, the conversation launches from there. And uh, are they fairly reliable? Do you guys have any trouble driving across the country? Is there any issues with breaking down or common problems that you run into? Well, um, no. Uh, just the problems that any car of that vintage that hasn't been, you know, uh, hasn't been modified. Uh, I think many, many of us, myself included, uh, have electronic fuel pumps. Either, um, either for just starting, uh, because uh, you know cranks to get the fuel into the in the carburetor, or in my case, I just have uh, 
run on electric fuel pump 100 percent just because a mechanical fuel pump is just doesn't cut it well yeah when you're cruising at 70 miles an hour it's starving for gas Hmm. um i i couldn't i couldn't make it pump enough gas to keep in my particular case maybe the lobe on the cam was worn enough so that i just couldn't keep a mechanical fuel pump that would you know allow me to go at 70 miles an hour so, David, you mentioned one of your meets was actually up near us in Minneapolis here a few years ago, yes. and you had Hudson, a story. Right. Yeah, you had a story about uh, some some issues out there. Well, these cars are uh, have a non-hypoid rear end with axles, and uh, the axles are all you know 1935 technology. And what do you uh, mean by that? When you, what, I'm well, thinking of a constant velocity joint or something, or or an, well, or an axle that's got something else going on. What or U joints? Well, you know, the axles are these long rods with splines on the end uh, um, that fit into the differential, and they were all made 85 years ago. And at this point in time, a lot of them are the metallurgy has just gotten old and brittle, and uh, one. One of the cars um, was uh, at the, we were at the yellow uh, the yellow house that sells candy, yep. and we we all know where that is, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. And and we were we had spent the night in Minnetonka and we were almost there to Hudson, so we pulled across the highway and uh, as we're pulling across the highway, uh, he he his axle broke and he lost power because they're not. Uh, they're not a limited slip differential. So he was dead in the water. And um, luckily, I had brought a spare axle because we know about this problem. In <laughs> fact, the, the, com- the, the club has engaged strange engineering, makes uh, a replacement axle that we commissioned and, and bought 50 pairs of axles and sold them out almost immediately. So you guys all kind of banded together and said, hey, this is a common problem. You just contact a machine shop and have them custom make you this part. Correct. That's awesome. And we've, we've done that with other things. <clears throat> Gasket sets for rear windows that we would uh, commission from steel and then sell them to our members and you know work out the initial investment over time. There's one. There's only about 700 of these cars in existence now. Uh, seven to less than a thousand, seven to eight hundred cars, and there's one club for the world, not not different clubs. So one. is it a mainly American where these America where these cars exist, or people in Europe lusting after these things as well? Europe, uh, Australia, New Zealand. Wow. Uh, not many, but Canada. What's there the are, what's the value? Well, it depends on condition, of course, and the model. Um, there's uh, three. There's four wheelbases. The one fifteens are DeSotos with a six cylinder or short nose. Then there's I'm sorry, five wheelbases. One twenty three short Chrysler with an eight. One twenty eight, which is the Imperial, which is the most common. And then two limousines, 136, which is what Jay Leno owns, and then 146. That's a huge car. Uh, there was only about 11 of them made. They can go the big What was their purpose, the 11? What did they use those for back then? Uh, department store owners, you know, I mean, very wealthy right, people right. had. 
a, a, a radio guy named Major Bose, B-O-W-E-S. He owned one of the 146s, which is for sale right now. Uh, I think uh, one of the Hyman or one of the other guys is selling it, the Major Bose uh, um, CW Airflow. Um, you can see it on the net because it's for sale right now. Sure. Uh, so the value can go from uh, $200,000 for the big cars. Oh, there it is. $500,000 they are asking for that thing. Oh, yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, yeah. Yeah. I, good luck, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, you know, you can, you can get a very, very, very good one for around forty. Um, they're not expensive what about a very very bad one do those <laughs> exist anymore because at some point uh, yeah, the bad yeah. ones go away but well the, no the bad ones are out there too and you can get them for less than 10 sure but the restoration of these is i would say <laughs> to be cute uh semi-monumental i mean it's not easy right. uh but that's why the airflow club exists the airflow club just published a 279 page restorer's guide, um, a very exhaustive piece. Uh, the Airflow Club exists to help uh, people um, bring their cars back to authentic. Are you seeing any interest from the younger crowd in in these cars? Like as like, you know, I'm talking, you know, 20 year old, 25 year old kids that are interested in picking up the mantle of because a lot of these guys, you know, if you go to back to the 50s here in Minneapolis, which maybe you've been to, maybe you haven't. Uh, if, yes. If you look at the crowd, Everybody's over fifty, for the right. most part. You, I mean, and then you've got this younger crowd too, like this core younger crowd. Is that have you seen that interest in what you guys are doing? What we're what we're getting is a lot of the children and grandchildren are picking up the mantle, you know, of grandpa's car or dad's car, and carrying on. And we do have some. Uh, it's mostly, uh, I would say. From time to time, we have somebody very young, but mostly if, if they're the younger people, they come to it because it's in the family. Right. And, right. They, and they, they've grown up with it or they always loved it. And now, you know, grandpa's aging out or died and they decide they want to take the car on um, and bring it back or, you know, uh, uh we're very into trying to keep the car's original Right. Uh, stock, but we also are welcoming to people who've modified them, and we really don't have a problem with people modifying cars if they're taking a car uh, that's really bad. Right. It, it it isn't really cool in my view to take a really good car and then change it, uh, although that's been done too. Yeah, but, I've seen uh, I've seen a couple of those. Now, do you feel in you know, once we're gone, what's the? How long do these things stay on the road? Just we're, with the way things are going right now with electric cars, and as we move on into cars that are going getting 13 miles per gallon, just aren't economical to drive anymore. How long does this last where we can really appreciate this golden era of motoring revolution, which this really was? I mean, this was this car, for example, was when things really started to accelerate. I think. Um, I think there'll always be enough of an interest in gasoline powered uh, vehicles for there to be gasoline available for those that want to have it. Um, I'll be long gone by that time. 
but uh, I think that there'll it's such a it's such an important and 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 long long rain you know long time so many years uh, that cars were driven by petrol uh, that I think that it'll always be part of the scene maybe as a museum piece but there will always be some interest in it, I feel. Um, we sure I, hope so. Yeah, we, we sure hope well, so, too. My goal would be that somebody pulls out, it's 2080, someone's great, great, great grandpappy had a Chrysler Airflow, and it's still around, and he takes it out and drives it and shows up in you know some major metropolitan area where everything is driving itself, and he shows up in this car, and it looks, at that point, will look like a spaceship. Like it's just yeah, from absolutely. a, it, it'll look like it's from another dimension. Well, that's what it looked like when it came out. Exactly. Right? It'll go full circle. Yeah. 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 But I'm hopeful that one of those cars that you're talking about will be one of mine. You know, yeah, I feel, absolutely. I feel, I feel very custodial about all my old cars and, and am very hopeful that they'll end up in good places after I'm gone. Well, nothing I own is, is, is like a custodial type of thing, but I think as time goes on, we get 15 years down the road from now, 20 years down the road from now, most of the less significant cars will start to fade away, disappear, be recycled, whatever. And I think anybody that's still into it is going to be a custodian of something. And But I think you might be surprised in yourself where, you know, my interest in these cars really didn't, I mean, I saw pictures of them and everything, but my interest in owning one really didn't come until I was uh, until I was in my fifties, right? So I think that gearheads, you know, you'd be surprised. Your tastes change, and the things you want to actually own change over time. You might think, oh, I don't, I'll never want that, but but then you know you have an appreciation for something. You see something, God, I want really want one of those. I'm going through that right now. There's a, one of my buddies has an old Packard, and I could never see myself. Back when I was building a little Volkswagen hot with hot 16 valve engines and stuff and doing all that kind of thing, getting into an old, you know, inline six Packard, driving it and going, my God, this is a completely different experience than anything, anything else I've ever experienced. And it's great. And it's just, <laughs> yeah. it's a breadth right. of experience. What it, is what it's all, it's becoming about the older I get, the more experiences I want. I want to experience more things. Right. And the fun for me the fun in, in this hobby, and I'm not saying I the way I do it is the only way, certainly, but the fun for me not only is just looking looking at them, but but actually physically driving them. Um, it's just a fun thing to do, you know. Uh, I I like having fun, and uh, for me this is fun. It's not fun for somebody else. It would be terrible. It doesn't have air conditioning. You know, <laughs> might break down. Uh, well, everything gosh. that's worth something has got some risk built into it. Yeah, yeah, but uh, for for me going with my friends on a six thousand mile trip in an eighty five year old car, that's about as good as it gets. 